stuff done, whether or not that's the, a UX person to review the app that you're working on, or if it's an, an potential an investor to give feedback on a pitch. Um, so if you're one of those people, this might be actually a cool space for you to come hang out and spend some time. Um, you can check out betaworks-studios.com to learn a little bit more, or chat with any of the folks at the front desk or myself if you want to find out a bit. Um, but a big thing that we do here uh, to provide values. We do tons of events and other kinds of experiences. We do things during the day that are usually for members only, like tomorrow morning we have our monthly Inside the Investment Committee event where a member gets to pitch a VC. We bring a VC in, the one tomorrow's primary. Um, and then you actually get to see what primary says about that pitch so that you can understand a little bit more about how these kinds of things are evaluated. Um, but in the evenings, we like to bring the public in. Um, and tonight's event is a part of a regular monthly series that we have here called Ask Me Anything Live, which is a iteration on the Reddit Ask Me Anything format. What we loved about that is it's a chance to kind of peel the layers back a little bit and hear some personal insights from well-known people who have done interesting things that you might not normally hear if you saw them speak at a conference somewhere um, or if you've seen a talk or heard a podcast. Um, and, it's a ch and we love the idea of actually, because we're all about live connected experiences, about bringing people in here where you could actually ask those questions yourself. So we've hosted a number of people for AMAs. Elizabeth Cutler, who was a founder of SoulCycle, um, Perry Chen, founder of Kickstarter, um, Jonah Peretti, the CEO of Huffington Post, tons of great folks. Tonight's special guest is Tim Armstrong, who is the founder of the DTX Group, which is a new uh, D2C-focused investment fund. But Tim is really kind of one of the early titans of New York tech, which is what a lot of our this AMA program is based around, is bringing some of those biggest and most important names. Um, Tim, believe it or not, I actually just learned tonight, hosted the first Google office in New York, which was on the Upper West Side, which was an apartment that he owned, as a very early Google employee based in New York. Um, he'll probably talk a little bit about that tonight, but he's been on a big journey really helping to shape a lot of the biggest tech companies in New York um, through leading up to where he's at now, including um, being with Verizon and AOL um, and Oath. Um, so he'll talk a little bit about that tonight. He'll talk about his future. He's going to be interviewed by Hillary Milnes, who is with Digiday. She is their retail editor. Um, Hillary is a keen, keen intellect, and she's up on the stage here to kind of help pull some interesting things out of Tim. So hopefully you guys have questions. You came with questions. Um, some of you ha are going to be called on to ask, but if we've got time and you've thought of a question throughout the evening, we'll try to hopefully, if Tim has more time, we'll get through to all of your questions there. So again, uh, check out betaworks-studios.com to learn a little bit more about what we're doing if you're interested in checking out other events that we've got coming up. And thank you so much for coming. And can I invite Tim and Hillary up on stage now? Thanks, Ben, and thanks, Betaworks, for having me. Uh, like Ben said, I'm Hillary Milnes. I'm the retail editor at Digiday. No one's ever called me a keen intellect before, so that's a first for me. Uh, and I'm here with Tim Armstrong. Do you want to give us an overview of DTX? You obviously have a varied background, coming from Google to AOL to Verizon to Oath. Did I skip anything? The, the, uh, I'm sure I did. Uh, so what is DTX? Uh, can, how do you describe it in a, in a compact way? Yeah, one, I just want to say uh, John Borthwick, who's the founder of Betaworks. I was one of the first investors. And uh, John, who's in the back of the room, I'm sure a lot of you guys all know him. But uh, special to be here because I think John is uh, somebody from a New York tech history perspective that's had one of the biggest impacts on the city. And I think the space alone is a testament to John's vision. And uh, I knew John before 
Betaworks. And um, I think one of the things that I realized when I met John was that um, you know he's always been about science and invention and, and those things. And I, I think this uh, this space really speaks to what's awesome about New York because you can walk out across the street and go to some of the best restaurants in the world and be in the most diverse, one of the most diverse cities in the world. But also John, I think, takes a lot of TLC on the founder front. And um, so thanks for having uh, me here, Hillary and, and uh, John and Ben. And uh, special, special spot. I, I think this will be probably one of the most famous spots in New York for tech in the next uh, 15, 20 years based on how it started. So it's pretty exciting to see. Great, yeah. So let's let's dig in. Uh, can you describe the you know the nature of of your latest venture? Uh, what what are you up to now? Uh, yeah. So the, the DTX company is doing um, two really simple things. One is we've been investing in direct to consumer companies, um, like a, like a, more like a VC. And then the second thing is where we've been building out um, what we announced in February, which was basically. Um, uh, sort of multi-channel experiential platform for direct-to-consumer companies to meet new customers in a totally different types of environment. And um, the companies, you know, we have uh, roughly 15 to 20 people right now. We're based down in Crosby and Spring Street, which uh, is sort of like DTC Alley. Um, and uh, and then we've been doing a number of other projects and things, but but basically I would say we're DTC pretty much 24 by 7, uh, seven days a week right now. And I read your, you had a huge DTC article today, which I got in my DTC feed, and I didn't know it was written by you till the end of it. I said, wow, this is like the most comprehensive, you know, thing. And I saw, I looked at Masai and I said, uh-oh, this might be a tough interview. <laughs> but uh, you had some good questions in there. Right, yeah, so I think the biggest question right now is where do these companies go from here, especially the ones that have raised a lot of venture funding, because it seems the more money you raise, the more press you get, the more buzz you have around this huge next generation consumer brand, but the more pressure you have to then fill the shoes of that valuation. Like when you have a luggage brand or a shoe brand valued at a billion dollars, you know, how, do you go public? Like what's, what's gonna happen with all of this money that's in the space right now? Yeah, so I think one is in just macro level, 100,000 feet. There's just like a lot of money floating around the world. I think, you know, basically there's like $4.1 trillion of investable money put into funds that are waiting to be invested from PE down to um, VC. So I think there is a lot of money. I think, um, you know, there's two criticisms I hear about the DTC space. One is that companies are kind of over-raising money and getting themselves into a value trap. The other one is that the companies will never be big. Um, so it's a kind of a weird argument that like people are pumping tons of money in, but nobody thinks they're gonna be um, big companies. And, and I would say, you know, the landscape right now is, I, I, from what I see, d like meeting with DTC companies on one side and then building a DTC platform on the other side is, I would break companies down into really kind of three different categories. Uh, DTC brands that know their metrics and their unit economics, DTC brands that don't know their unit economics, um, and then companies that have either raised the right amount of money or the wrong amount of money. And I think when we see people come in and, and pitch us, they pretty much fit into, you know, those kind of, I guess the third categories, two categories, but they kind of fit into those um, areas. And I think um, the companies that know their unit economics and they basically are drilled into the unit economics with consumers, I think you're gonna see a ton of those companies be successful. And I don't know if they're gonna be $50 million companies, $100 million, billion dollar, multi-billion, but 
I think if you took a snapshot of today's environment where you had massive corporations that have sucked up a lot of the kind of um, consumer power in the world, both online and offline, and then you looked at the DTC industry, which looks like a ton of small companies that are all in different categories, I think if you fast forward 15 years from now, you're going to see the emergence of kind of new holding companies that have aggregated a bunch of those, and you're going to see some of the companies from the, I'll call it the old economy, bridge into buying a lot of DTCs. So I, I think all the issues that you just raised about over-raising money and things like that, I think those things are out there. I think underlying is what I saw at the beginning of the internet, is there's a new way of doing business, um, and the companies are fundamentally better at understanding their consumers. Um, so I, I, if you had made me bet between the way things have been done in the DTC economy, I would push all my chips into DTC because I think the companies are just closer to the consumers, they have better product development, and they kind of understand their business at a, at a molecular level, which over time will allow them to scale pretty greatly. So Right. That, I think that's pretty spot on with what we're seeing as well. It's, uh, it, uh, you know, we're heading towards a bit of consolidation at least. Um, I was actually at an event earlier, and uh, Terry Kawaja of Luma uh, compared the direct-to-consumer category now to the programmatic uh, industry in, like, 2009. Super fragmented, heading towards this, this clumping together. So whenever you have this, like, detail, TC deep brand DNA that's built on that direct customer connection, the storytelling, those like relationships that other brands didn't have. How do you maintain that while you scale, while you get, if you're getting, you know, picked up by a, a Unilever? Yeah. Well, I think one is, you know, um, like in my older age now, I, one of the things I impart to the, uh, the companies when they come in or even to, to the company I'm running right now is, you know, when you have a successful business, you should have problems. The key is to have the right problems. So I think the DTC companies that are successful basically start with solving a super consumer need. Then they have a great story behind it. Then they, you know, scale up some level of production and have success. Then, you know, their supply chain breaks. Then they have to redo the supply chain. Then that's working and then they run out of customers in whatever channel they're awesome at. So they have to go, you know, omni-channel. And then after they go omni-channel, they expand their product portfolio. And then the product portfolio doesn't necessarily fit the original story, so they have to change. And, I, like, I think people get very worried about those problems, but those are excellent problems to have. And I think when you talk to the DTC founders, you know, they sort of feel like the world's caving in on them. But in reality, what's happening, the slope line's kind of going up, but there's, like, gyrations in the problem space. And so I, I you know, I'm... I'm pretty bullish on the fact that like a lot of the problems that are coming out of DTC right now are the right problems and as uh, as kind of you know you're in the space covering all these companies also and, and a lot of the stuff that was in your article today points out like what those issues are when you go from single channel to omni channel so I, I think um, you know I, I, I loved all the problems you brought up and I think those are the right problems to have and the this, the space that people are going into tend to be like really defined and r have a high chance of success as long as they continue to push really hard. Right, and yes. and so from your perspective, you have a, you know a, a career coming from tech companies. Right. What were the did you see parallels uh, between what was happening at Google, AOL, Verizon um, it, towards what's happening in consumer now? Like I, I think that there's. You know, a good, been a big shakeout in in media and this push towards direct connections that we've also seen on the consumer side. How do you sort of compare those two industries, and how did uh, you know your experience lead you to this category? Yeah, 
I think one is, um, you know, the difference I see in this is that uh, different than probably the Lumascape stuff that Terry would talk about is everybody was sort of pigpiling on the same data um, in the ad tech space. And in the DTC space, there's a huge amount of opportunity in different categories. And some of them will get consolidated. Like, you know, people always, when I'm out talking to people, they always bring up the mattress category. And I think, I forget the status, but there's 10 companies funded over $50 million in the mattress category. And they say, isn't that a problem? And you say, well, you know, that's venture capital. They tend to fund tons of things. So I, I think there will be scale shakeout let that happened in tech will eventually happen in DTC, but I think the form of the shakeout will change. I think that you will have um, a lot of successful brands and companies um, that replicate more like what a, probably a P&G looks like or a Unilever or those type of companies rather than monopolistic giant one brand you know, digital companies that own every single piece of data on the planet. I think that's like unlikely in DTC. And what got me to this space was um, I have a, a core fundamental belief, and it might be wrong, but I don't think 15 years from now you're going to wake up on planet Earth and there's going to be 10 companies that ha own every single piece of consumer data in the world. And I think on the other side, I think running a super big company where you're not connected to the end consumer and you don't understand them um, won't be possible either. So the combination of those two things looks to me like DTC has a real shot at being really successful over a longer period of time. And I think it's uh, like I remember the day the internet hit $700 million in sales for advertising. And we were having like, we had a giant party at our office um, in Seattle. And if you go forward today, like people would laugh at that, but people sort of laugh at DTC and say, oh, it's a bunch of small companies. They're never going to amount to anything. No one's ever going to scale. And I think the reality is what they're missing is the product development cycle underneath and how close they are to the consumers. That's what's going to allow them to eat the big elephants one bite at a time. And, and that's why I went to the space. Right. So how do you make sense of the amount of dependence that a lot of these brands had, at least in the early stages? Obviously, now they're, they're starting to diversify on Facebook and Google for that type of growth and access to customers. Yeah, I mean, I think, one, those companies are natural partners to DTC because the DTC founders tend to be so centric on data and understanding their consumers that those platforms offer a lot of um, data. And I think when you start to go outside of those platforms, the further you get away from those platforms, um, if you go to some other spaces where you can market to consumers, some cases there's almost no data. Um, there might be brand value, but there's no data. But the brand value side for the direct-to-consumer people who are unit, unit economic focused, it's really hard. If I sat you down in front of a Facebook or Instagram dashboard, and then I sat you down in one of the offline channel segments and said, um, which one do you want to do? You'd be really hard-pressed to say the data here I'm going to put my investment, the data, I, I like what happens over here, but without the data, I have a hard time putting my investment there. But but I think what you're seeing in your article today, you talked about Third Love running on TV ads, and I think that's starting to happen, and people are realizing the, the value in it. Um, I'd also say, uh, just being totally honest about it, I went to Shop Talk for the first time in Las Vegas. Have you been to Shop Talk? You probably have. Um, you know, I, I had 20 meetings at Shop Talk, and after the first five meetings, I was like, and these were with larger, more offline, not DTC companies, I thought, wow, like maybe the first five meetings, these companies aren't super data-centric. And then the next day, we had like 15 meetings, and I would say like the retail space in general 
is not super data centric, which was surprising. Um, and the DTC companies are, so I think the combo of, of being data centric, customer focused, they're gonna naturally go to the digital platforms, and then I think they'll bleed out over into the other spaces, but there's a lot of opportunity in those other spaces for DTC. Right, and when we think about you know, big companies holding a lot of the power for retail, obviously that leads us to Amazon. What, how do you see Amazon fitting into this DTC era of retail? Yeah, I think um, one, Amazon's done just an amazing job, obviously, of serving consumers, and I think they've gained a lot of power just because of that one simple concept. I, I would say this, I think Amazon's doing some things now that seem unclear for me from the outside what, what they're doing. One is they seem Thanks. to be sh shifting a lot of operational cost back on the marketplace. So if you've been selling things to Amazon and using them as a major distributor, from the outside they seem to be pushing people in the marketplace and really what's that doing is offloading a lot of the operational cost back on the brands and overhead back on the brand. So my guess is at Amazon it probably looks like, wow, if we can move this eight and a half, nine billion dollars of operational cost into the brand space off of us, Amazon's profitability is probably gonna look great. I, I, the noise I hear in it from the brands is that they feel like they're getting shoved off, eating all these costs. Um, so I, I think anytime you hear that level of pain, usually there's like opportunity on the other side of pain. So I, I'm, I'm guessing that like that, those decisions Amazon's making will lead to other areas that have been growing quickly. Like one of the things that's pretty amazing is what's happening with Shopify um, overall. So I wonder if Amazon shoving a lot of people into the marketplace is actually going to help Shopify become much, much, much stronger because people are going to have to worry more about operational things that Amazon was doing before. So I, I don't. What do you think? What do you think they're doing? Uh, I th you know, I think they're they're moving towards hands off the wheel as much as possible because they have this massive business. But I think that they're now looking also at, at a brand opportunity, uh, at least on their on their vendor marketplace. Uh, so trying to win over these brands that are like, oh, we're never going to sell on Amazon. So I also think Amazon's fun. aggressively doing their their white label stuff. Oh yeah, which feels to the brands a lot more like kind of Walmart, you know. Uh, kind of history, so I, I think it's also making brands nervous, though. Mm -hmm. But when I hear, I don't know if you hear the same oh, thing. Oh, absolutely. Brands are very nervous about Amazon in general. Uh, but, you know, I want to turn it over to the audience questions, um, you know, before we cover too many topics. Uh, so the first one is from Arjun, yep. right here. Hi, Tim. This is Arjun, like Argentina without the Tina. Um, I am the founder of Woofy, which is a data science marketing company. My question to you is, uh, who is your biggest mentor and inspiration? And also, a hello from David Bell. Oh, there you go. All right, so how did you get the name Woofy? What was the story behind Woofy? So, like a dog, he's always there helping you, you know, learn how to post, when to post, and why to post. Your social media marketing, driven by data. Um, I would say, you know, mentorship starts at home, um, and I, I mean that. Like, one of the reasons I actually went to Google is I had two different job offers, and my wife, who's here, Nancy, I don't know where she is, but uh, she's right up here. She, uh, I think a lot of the, like, one big decision you spend is, like, uh, I'm a big believer in the average of five. Like, the five people you see the most, you end up probably becoming like. So I think one is... Uh, you know, having a partner in life is important, and, and I don't think um, I probably ever called her a mentor, but my wife is somebody that has, like, really good judgment on things. I think there's people like David Bell, who used to be the, the uh, Interpublic Group uh, CEO, who you know clearly, and, um, you know, he's somebody I used to meet with every Friday, and every meeting would start with, uh, hey, Tim, how do you think things are going this week? And I'd be like, oh, I think they're going, you know, they went okay, and he'd be like, they didn't. You know, they were, re like, really really bad week, you know, and he would list, he would go around and talk to all my direct reports and find out what's going on. 
And then there's other people like I would just say, um, you know, really people like Eric Schmidt when I was at Google, I learned a lot from. Uh, Larry and Sergey were great uh, as well. Uh, Howard Schultz, actually, I spent a bunch of time with when I took over AOL. He's the first trip I went on was to go see Howard to kind of spend a day with him to think about being a CEO. And, and I would say like moments like that, you kind of can't replicate. He, first question he asked me, a whole strategy deck about what we're gonna do. And he was like, he was like, um, who's, your, who's your head of head, uh, HR person? And I was like, oh, we're, you know, we're in the process of finding one and changing things. And he was like, all right, all we're doing is spending time on people. You know, and so I think having people like that from a mentorship standpoint are really um, helpful. And then over the course of time, um, one of the things I like to do is uh, basically self-educate all the time as much as humanly possible. So I sort of look at every meeting I go to, like a um, education or PhD session, and then some of the jobs I've had, I've had a huge opportunity to go meet with like a lot of leaders. So I would say over the course of time, because I ask so many leadership questions or company questions in meetings, people who are kind of into that same ilk basically have become mentors. So I would say probably, you know, I have probably five or 10 people who are leaders that I talk to on a super regular basis. One, one uh, Kenny Dichter, who's the founder of Wheels Up, who if you watch uh, Billions and Entourage and stuff, Kenny is really one of my best friends. And I probably, I sometimes talk to him multiple times a day. Um, and uh, so I think mentors, are, one thing I would just suggest if you're an entrepreneur, which I did early on, even when I had a board of directors at AOL and a public company, I had a, um, I had my own personal board of directors, and I would tell people that. I'd say, look, do you mind if you, I add you to my personal board of directors? And I'd be like, here's what I want. I just want like the truth or feedback or those things. So like Shep and Ian from Vineyard Vines. Um, I can't want well, blank on people I started saying, but a whole bunch of people who are kind of entrepreneurs. I put John Borthwick, you know, John Borthwick in that camp um, also. So I have a huge crew of people that I kind of get information from. Is Dave Bell your mentor? Um, One of them? Okay, so I'm gonna tell you something. Don't tell him I said this. You're in the least you're in the least exclusive club on planet Earth. I go places all over the world and people stop me in the airport. They're like, oh hey, I'm a David Bell's my mentor. And so after like one one of the final trip I was on, I said, David, I'm I thought you were I like had a personal connection with you. He's like, We do. I said, You have personal connections to every country in the world I go to. So I, you're you're in a good club, but there's a lot of people in the club. Yeah, D just to follow up on that, what are the traits that you look for in a mentee? People I mentor? Mm -hmm. um, one is uh, curiosity, uh, science-based learning, and I'd say the third thing is, um, is effort. And what I mean by effort is I have a lot of people that, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll give you a great example of one. So a kid graduating from college, this who just graduated, who's coming to work at DTX company, got my phone number and he texted me last, um, last uh, October. And he said, hey, my name is so-and-so. I'm graduating um, from, I uh, went to Brown. He's like, I'm graduating from Brown this year. I really wanna come work for you. So I wrote him back. Well, no, I didn't write him back intentionally. So I didn't write him back just to see if he would write back again. So he wrote back a second time, and uh, the second time he wrote back, I said, hey, I'm really busy, I can't, uh, you know, I'll have to talk to you later just to see if he'd write back again. So then he wrote back again. So then I said, okay, here's the deal. You have one hour presentation time, uh, December 12th, 
uh, which was like six weeks away or something, and I said, be in New York City at 9 a.m. December 12th. You have one hour to present the DTC space um, and another space to our team we were building at, at DTX. Be here December 12th, and that's it. So he wrote back saying, like, well, what, you know, what do you want me to do? You know, and I said, be here December 12th at 9 a.m., and if you do a good job, I'll give you a job. So I don't hear from him. He, he, things go silent. And then, like, a week before he's supposed to come, maybe December 3rd or 4th, he sends me a note saying, I've been doing tons of work, but I just want to know, like, when I come down there, like, is there anything else you want from me or what do you want me to do? And I said, if you've done your work, it will be apparent. Come, sh I'll see you next week. So he came down. He was supposed to present for an hour. He presented for two and a half hours. It was one of the best presentations I've ever seen. We made him a job offer on the spot, and he's starting... Um, next, he's starting on Monday at, uh, at, the, at the company. And I think when I, we talk about mentorees, like I want people who want to put in the hustle because you can want to get mentored, but there's some people who want to get mentored that want you to just tell them, they want to like somebody to let you, you know, put out the yellow brick road. And the reality is the yellow brick road gets built one brick at a time. And I think that that story is an example of like what I look for um, and I've gotten great. I've called people to get mentored, and so I get it. Um, but I and I try to give back as much as I can. Um, I got another. There's another mentor. I guess I, I don't know if I if I can say it. where's JD. There so JD's in the back. JD's graduating. Uh, not, not graduating. He's going to be a junior at Georgetown. He started a DTC company that's doing DTC for veteran-owned brands um, and helping that get uh, get distribution. So JD called and said, hey, I'm starting this uh, DTC company. Can I meet with you and can we talk about it? So JD came in, we spent a couple hours together. Um, he, basically when DTX was rolling, he said, can I leave Georgetown and, and come uh, this summer and do the veterans own brand and learn how to do DTX? JD is like crazy, uh, like if I could buy 5% of JD's income for the rest of his life, I would, I would buy it. He's a crazy hustler and he's doing good things for the world. And I think those are the type of people you know you want. You can't replicate the hustle that JD has. Right, right. Interesting. I'm sweating just thinking about that guy's story. Uh, so the second question is from Rachel right here. Hi. Um, so my name is Rachel. I work for a DTC company um, that is a subscription-based meal delivery service. So we are a tech company that sells food. Um, and I am a big believer in pop-ups and anything experiential, um, especially in this space where there's a little bit more of a barrier between the company and um, the consumer. So I was just wondering what you think, um, what you've seen done well and what you've seen not done well in pop-up and anything experiential really, um, especially for, we're just sort of past that startup stage, so we're still scrappy. Um, in the past, I've done a lot for CPG companies, so there's obviously a little bit of like a financial disparity between what can and can't be done um, when you're in a startup. So I would love to know what you've seen done well, what you've seen not done well, and also um, ways that you think you can engage the consumer um, on a deeper level and get some deep insights about your product without it seeming like you're asking them to do work for you. Yeah, I would um, say one is people, many people in the DTC space don't understand how powerful in-person and uh, pop-ups are, but they are super powerful. And uh, by the way, I would even say like trunk shows or like doing things in people's homes all the way up to having like a pop-up, you know, in, in the meatpacking district or Soho or, or some other city. And I think that the, um, the experiences 
come down to the following things. One is um, being super clear about what you want the consumer to experience at the pop-up. Like if you go to the, a lot of pop-ups around here or down in, down in Soho, basically some of them you walk into and it's like a store. It like feels like a normal store. And some of the pop-ups you walk into, they're like t on you or there's an experience there like right when you kind of get there and walk in. Um, that's one. I think second is like trial is huge. I think getting people to touch, feel, or give them something, like they feel like they got a gift from you on a trial basis at a pop-up, it seems pretty basic. Um, third thing are master classes. Uh, I would say like master classes is another thing in pop-ups that work really well. And a uh, master class, in maybe I don't know what exact food space you're in, but if you had a nutritionist there and you basically offered um, three nights a week to have nutrition classes in general, that's the type of thing. I think some of the brands were invested in do master classes and you can't replicate that because what you're doing is like creating mini experts in your area and I think the knock-on effect from that is, uh, is really huge. And then obviously I think social media has a huge knock-on effect for the pop-ups that do well. I will tell you there's two things I see pop-ups doing that I think are huge mistakes is they're not collecting foot traffic or data at all at a generic level when people come in. And number two is they're, um, they're not giving the person the opportunity to sign up or authenticate on an app or something like that. And I, I, I was at um, a pop-up with one a founder this week and there was not a ton of data collection happening, and I think that's a really big missed opportunity. Um, and uh, I think there's, if you go to China, I spent ten, 10 days in China recently, going to all the new retail things. You know, they've done a very good job of frictionless data collection in China, and the U.S. is really far behind on that. But I would just say if I were doing a pop-up, I would, I would almost start with data and go to the experience afterwards. Um, if I was given one piece of advice, but then make the experience like a very master class feeling, um, not just like a retail experience. Great. So when you hear about someone at Rachel's type of company, obviously you think of Blue Apron first and foremost. Do you think that Blue Apron kind of set a bad precedent for brands in the DTC space to go public? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I Look, I the bottom line is... Um, as an entrepreneur and a company that you want to basically grow and expand, especially brands, I'm assuming you guys have, it's capital intensive, you need to like get subscribers and, and get the food out and do those things. You know, look, the, the public markets are an amazingly efficient capital machine if they're working properly. If they're not working properly, they stink. But um, so I would say, you know, getting to the point where there's liquidity wh where and also you can raise more money over time, I don't think that's a, I don't think it's a huge mistake. I think it's a mistake to go public if you're, if you truly don't have the unit economics you need to have because at some point you have to pay the piper. So I think that's, that I would separate whether or not to go public from do you have unit economics. And that, that's why, by the way, I hammered on the unit economics up front. I say this to all the entrepreneurs. I'm like, unit economics are the single most important thing. Like Bill Clinton says, the economy's stupid. In DTC, it's the unit economics stupid. And um, I, I wouldn't go public if I didn't know those. Interesting. Awesome. So our next question is from Ethan. He's right up next here. How's it going? Um, so I do demand planning and forecasting at the same company as Rachel. Um, and so uh, I know a lot of you here are asking questions about brand and marketing, um, but mine's more about supply chain. 
So um, interested to hear your thoughts on what companies get right and wrong from a production supply chain distribution channel perspective, because ultimately all of this stuff impacts the overall user experience um, outside of you know, you know what experience you give in person. Yeah, so I'll tell you the um, I, um, I knew David and Heidi from Third Love before we invested it, and in, I knew David. I worked with him at Google's, and I told him when we were, I was leaving Google, I'm like, I'm going to invest in anything you're doing. And then he called back and said, "We invest in Third Love." And I said, "Yes, but you got to come in and tell me the story." And the thing that got me over the line with Third Love was their supply chain story because they had issues with the foam um, in the bras. And they went to China and uh, researched all of the factories. I think it was Vietnam, and uh, they went to a couple other countries. And basically, the TLC they put in to the factory process, the supply chain, um, and those things struck me as having dealt. I've probably gone to visit 10,000 companies in my career, and like all from big ones, little ones, all those. While David was telling me the story, I was thinking to myself, if I worked at Victoria's Secret, would the person in David's position, who was basically in charge of, of building the product and supply chain, would that person have flown to all these countries and spent that much time on the actual foam coming out of the factory and whether or not it met the quality threshold? And my answer was probably no. Two or three weeks later, um, Sarah Gibson Tuttle from Olive and June called us to get an investment. Um, and she said, oh, I, 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 um, I can only do it at this time because I'm traveling. So we got on the phone with her um, and another one of her founders. And um, I, we said, I said, Sarah, where are you? She said, I'm in China. I said, what are you doing in China? She said, the quality on my supply chain is not there. And I'm going to fix it. And I'm not leaving China until I fix it. And so I was like, bingo, you know. So I think that the challenge as a DTC entrepreneur, you know the problem you're solving, you know the story. There's all kind of what I call the sexy front end of DTC. Um, the real sexiness in DTC comes from the supply chain mentality, quality, speed, cost, you know, going back to unit economics. And I think that, that uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know if I guess I can say this, but Rent the Runway is one of my favorite companies, and, and uh, Jen and Maureen Sullivan used to be my chief of staff at AOL. She worked for me at Google, and then she's the president of Rent the Runway now. And um, like they're, I think they're the largest dry cleaner in the world, you know, right now. And I think Rent the Runway. When you talk to women about Rent the Runway, they love Rent the Runway, um, and their expansion has been amazing. The amazing thing is when you talk to Rent the Runway, they're supply chain maniacs. Um, and I think the fact they've been able to build the largest dry cleaner in the world is like amazing. So I think supply chain is super important. And I, if you're not a maniac about it, I would make sure you hire somebody internally who's a maniac. Are you the supply chain maniac? Yes. All right, good. So would you go to China and figure out what was wrong? Or, or where, where do you guys produce all your food? Phoenix and Maryland. In Maryland? And New Jersey. And New Jersey. And how many, where do you ship? All over the United States, everywhere? Yeah, we hit the lower 48. I got you. Did you say the name of the company? What kind of, can you say? Freshly. 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 Oh, nice. Oh, yeah, no, Freshly. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, this dress is rented, by the way. Is it, uh, yeah. it the Runway? Yeah. Oh, there you go. I give a nice plug. Yeah, I could spend go. the rest of this hour talking about Rent the Runway, but I won't. So the next question is from Anna, right over here. Hi, um, my name's Anna. Um, I used to work at AOL Time Warner when it first merged. Um, I was wondering what your experience was, because back in the day when I was there, it was Jerry Levin and um, Steve Case. 
authentic person. So what was your experience? So I'll, I'll tell this very quickly, but my experience, I went directly from like a Friday to a Monday. I went from Google right to AOL. And Google had gone from zero to $150 billion market cap, and AOL had gone from $150 billion down to one. So, um, so when I got there, I'd say the biggest, I'll just tell you that the biggest difference was at Google, I sat at an open desk, like an open you know, thing, and I had for years, and I, there was no hierarchy. I went to meetings, and it was like um, basically every the best idea won. It didn't matter if you're the most junior person, the most senior person in the room. And when I went to AOL, it was much more, I would describe it as like corporate. The area that the CEO office in was, was password protected with a glass wall, and the carpet was thicker. Like you went from like pre-glass wall, and then when you had the glass wall, it was you know, much thicker. And so the first day I was in there, um, there was somebody standing outside the glass wall. And um, and the person was out there for like 15 minutes and I could see them. I was on the phone. When I hung up the phone, I went over, opened up the glass door and it was uh, somebody from the mail room. And I said, what are you standing outside the glass door for? And they said, I can't get in here unless I have a, a you know, a vice president badge or, you know, above. I'm like, so how often do you stand in front of this door? He's like, well, I stand here like forever, you know, until people open it up. And I'm like, okay, something, you know, something's wrong. So I, I would just say culturally, like probably, you know, uh, the culture differences were, were dramatic. Um, I would say on the reverse side of that, AOL had a really strong, loyal customer base that everybody in the world wanted to like make fun of. But the reality is, like I just remember, I just got an email from a huge celebrity in Los Angeles uh, today um, for something I'm working on. They had an AOL address, and every time I see AOL address, it just reminds me that like even if the corporate culture like got really bad over time, the the f brands are really strong. And I think Google had a strong brand, but AOL actually had a really strong consumer brand, and and the cultures were different. But I would say, company-wise, you know, I think the saying is like culture was it uh, culture eats uh, strategy, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I would say culture eats strategy for breakfast, and execution eats both of them for lunch. You know, the pro one of the problems at AOL was the culture wasn't great, but also execution, like great products were not coming out of the company. And so I think that was probably the biggest lesson. Like Google's maniacally focused on product and science and data and AOL, you know, what wasn't. Um, and I think that was a big, big cultural shift. Um, I'd also say just one lesson for you is um, culture is the manager when you're not around. So like people always say, oh, culture's, you know, this, culture's that. If you don't show up to work, whatever your culture is, is gonna take over and, and manage the company while you're not there. <clears throat> so I would say you have to kind of, culture has to be intentionalized, if that's a word. Um, and uh, I think that's the biggest difference is AOL didn't have an intentionalized culture. I think by the time we sold to Verizon and those things, I think we did, but it was a huge amount of work um, to get there. So I don't know if that's, what was your experience at time where AOL? I was really low on the totem pole. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Barely yeah. All right. So, by the way, that's an answer I'd expect to get. I was really low on the totem pole because there was a totem pole. Um, and I think that, that, that not having a totem pole, you know, is important, especially in today's world. Okay. Great. Uh, next, we have a question from John. John, right here. <laughs> uh, duopo duopoly notwithstanding, how much uh, ad revenue, gross ad revenue, do you think a startup directed to teens getting maybe a million impressions a day could expect in a year? Um, 
Wh what space is it in? Is it, is it, is it sell things or is it media? Uh, publishing. Team. It's publishing. Yeah. And it's a million with impressions with a, so a day. With social aspects. How many unique users are there? Um, you know? We haven't launched yet. But assu oh, okay. assuming, a, uh, assuming a million page users a day. I mean, if it's super highly targeted, teens are very tough market to market to because of all the restrictions. Uh, depending we've on had a few million page views. We've taken it down, but we've, we've been out before. Okay. So I, I would say, you know, you could calculate it on a CPM basis. I think if you were, you know, if you were doing a really not great job, you'd have like low single digit CPMs. And if you were doing a really good job and you had a super defined audience, you know, you could probably get into the 25 to 30 range CPM. Um, you, but but if you, that's super highly targeted, super experiential, um, collecting data, you know, doing all that type of stuff. If you just turned on, you know, AdSense or the fan network or something like that, I think it'd be much, uh, probably much lower, I don't know. But, uh, but I, I would, I don't know, with a million impressions a day, um, I, I don't know, I couldn't calculate. It's somewhere between a little and a lot. Thank you. But it's... Um, that's, that's one in the weeds. Right. <laughs> uh, so you talked about a lot uh, of unit and e economics and how much you look at that. What are the main metrics you look for um, that a company might invest in to see if it's a healthy business? I know profitability has kind of become this optional factor uh, for a lot of D DTC brands, at least at the beginning. I think one is, uh, you know, do the basic ones, do you know your CAC, you know, um, what drives the CAC, um, what changes the CAC, those things. I think the second thing is, um, is going back to supply chain, w what are the unit economics on the, on the sub if you had the reverse of CAC instead of customer acquisition, it's product acquisition, uh, it's what's the cost to actually acquire one unit of your product, and I think those two those two metrics, you know, matter a ton. Um, and then also, I would just say whether or not they know what they're spending for the brand and what they're spending for just straight acquisition. A lot of companies mix those two things together. And I think, um, <clears throat> you know, some people launch, we've had companies come in that launch pop-up stores, and we ask them, why did you launch a pop-up store? They're like, oh, my number one competitor launched a pop-up store across the street. You know, and I'm like, what else? They're like, no, that's why, you know, and, and I think those are things that are probably need more um, science type things behind them. But those are probably the two largest right. things we look at. Interesting. Awesome. And now we have Russell. Go right ahead. Um, thanks, Tim. Uh, my name is Russell. I'm with the Swedish fintech Klarna, and we work with a lot of D2C companies. And I'm curious, um, what do you think to be the next big category, right, for D2C disruption? Um, you know, I think there's a whole bunch. I'd say furniture is one. Um, I don't know, anybody here ever ordered furniture? No? Yes, yeah, a huge, takes forever. Um, I think there's some interesting ones in that, that category, but that, that's one. Um, I Honestly, I think banking is another one. Um, I, you know, I know there's some announcements today about Monzo and other people coming to the U.S. from the U.K., um, but I would say banking is, you know, I'll give you one example in banking. I have a checking account that's for some reason has two checking accounts against it. I'm not sure why. Um, the one checking account is basically defunct and doesn't work. And when I go to an ATM, it somehow de facto pulls up the one that's never been used. And if I'm not at my bank's ATM, it defaults to that one and I can't get, you know, money out of it. And so I've tried to fix it. I'm like, call the bank, you know, done a bunch of other things. If there were a DTC bank where I could just like, instantly log in, instantly fix the account, you know, all those things in general. I know there's banks out there, but I think that's 
you know, I kind of walk around every street corner in America and there's like four banks on every, you know, physical street corner and I can't get my account fixed. I'm like, you know what, this is ripe for, and there's a lot of money floating around. So I think there's categories like that. I'll say another one, which I think is going to sound totally bizarre because it's like the number one DTC category is clothing. Um, like it's amazing that clothing has all, like the fitting on clothing hasn't been fixed. And there's a bunch of companies doing that, but it hasn't scaled. Um, I'd say POS systems are another one, like having like more DTC checkout type related stuff. That's another big one. Um, I don't know. There's a, I think there's a lot, but what, 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 what you were in the space. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that <coughs> we do DTC POS, so I mean, we just our app right. allows you to basically shop and essentially you can shop anywhere and, and break payments or the costs up into equal installments with no interest. Right. Right. So that's just an example yeah. of the kind of yeah. democratization. Yeah, I think that's a huge, that space is huge. So I hope you win. Mm -hmm. We have time for three more audience questions. If you raise your hand, Great. I can run a mic over. Um, so reading your bio online before this event, I saw you were, you had a very interesting history um, and many different transitions. Looking back, um, what is, is there a, a different strategy you would have used in one transition? Um, I would say, so my, my career started really briefly in um, investment banking and I was there for like maybe three or four months and the guy next to me was like 15 times better in investment banking stuff than I was. So I went to my boss, I'm like, you should definitely fire me. Like, I'm gonna leave. And he was like, why are you gonna leave? I said, the guy next to me, this is a guy named Murph. I'm like, Murph is amazing. Um, so I'm like, clearly, if I like go out in my career, you know, 20 years, Murph's gonna be the man, and, and I won't be. So I'm gonna go off and find something else. And I, I would just say from a basic level, all the transitions I've made have basically centered around one thing, which is um, education and learning. And I think, you know, I, I've kind of had three big kind of career times. One was like right when I got out of school, I did that, but then I started a newspaper and got into media. Then I did the whole internet phase, and I feel like I'm in, in the third phase now with, with uh, DTC. And I would honestly say almost every transition I made was because of learning. Like there were multiple times that I traded less money, less, you know, smaller companies, those things. And um, I, I kind of used that for my transition goals. And, um, you know, there's areas of my career that I look back on where I'm like I've made huge mistakes or I've done other types of things, but, uh, you know, it, as Babe Ruth said, you know, yesterday's home runs don't count in tomorrow's game. So I'm also somebody who has like a bathtub mentality, which is like once I'm done with something and moved on from it, I just, you know, pull the cork out of the tub and all the water, you know, drains out and I, I, and I start new and that's basically what I did with, uh, with DTC. When I started in DTC, by the way, the first thing I did is I spent you know, m months studying hours a day DTC and data and built, we built probably one of the largest databases of DTC companies on the planet uh, that we have at, at the DTX company. And so I, I don't really look back at anything and say, I wish I had done that. I wish I had transitioned from here. I basically try to make the best decision I can at the time. I would say one other lesson I learned is actually making decisions and doing things, uh, like one of the things I, the older I've gotten, the easier it is for me to take more and more risk because I took a lot of risk when I was younger and I see a lot of people that are, once you become afraid to take a risk, 
if you go out two months or three months, that risk gets bigger and worse. If you go out three years, it gets bigger and worse. So one of the things I would tell people is to practice taking risks. Um, and um, like George Steinbrenner, who used to run the Yankees, basically he used to show up every day and do the thing he hated to do the most first. But I'm guessing over time, if you did that every day over and over and over again, you probably get really used to that and used to taking risk and used to doing stuff you don't want to do. And if you add that up over a huge amount of time, let's say you take one big risk a, a year and George Steinbrenner takes 365, his profile for risk is going to be much different. And I kind of try to use that mentality, um, you know, career-wise. So I, I, you know, I, I, there's certain things I, I wish I had more time to do or things like patches, something I did, which was like a local news thing across the U.S. And... I think local news is super important. The Senate just had a big debate about it yesterday, and we probably put the most ambitious project in the country into local news when I was running AOL, trying to turn AOL around, but I only was able to spend a fraction amount of time on Patch, and Patch is profitable and growing. Now, I don't own it uh, anymore, but I founded it, and then I think the, the Hale Group who runs it, they're amazing people. Um, so I think there's stuff I look back on that, like, wow, I probably was over-ambitious, and I wish I had more time to spend on something like that, but career transitions, um, I think the reality is probably nobody cares except for me, um, and uh, and I don't really care, so you shouldn't either. <laughs> Thanks. Sorry. All right, next question. Hi. Um, there's a couple of stores that I think are very interesting because they're like DTC brands that are going into brick and mortar. So there's Bulletin, which is a shop for young women. It's um, Their customer base is maybe like 25. So they bring a lot of, um, and the reason why they started that shop was because they were trying to um, help these like online brands. Like, well, how can we help you? And they said, get us a space where we can actually interface with people because we've been trying to sell online where we can't, we just, we just need to be in, in front of people. So they opened that, and then there's also this um, department store for online brands called Showfields, which just opened. So I was wondering, and then like I know the data right now from all the news is that still, even though e-commerce um, sales have been you know, inching up steadily through the years, I think on average, I don't know how they get the numbers, but they say it's like maybe 12% of all sales are done online and then the rest are done through brick and mortar. So I was wondering with the DTC brands, I mean, I, I just love these new companies that create great products like Third Love, um, the like the Margot shoes, those are all fantastic products. How do you see, do you see more of like the show field and the bulletins or do you see more increase in um, just like e-commerce? No, I, I think, um you know, I, I tell the story to the brands we meet with because we're in, we're investing in some experiences offline. Is um, you know when when Dell Computer was the number one computer seller and they were crushing it, um, and you could custom order your computer any configuration you wanted, it came right away. You know, Apple started opening up retail stores, and if you go back to that time period, people were like, "Why would Apple ever open up a retail store while Dell is m you know murdering it online?" And, you know, if I asked you that question today, would you think Apple should have retail stores? Yes. Um, you, you know why? Because has anyone ever been to Rome? When you go to the Colosseum in Rome, what, what, what do they do inside the Colosseum in Rome other than kill animals and do all the other stuff they did? <laughs> they had retail shops in the Colosseum. Do you know why? You know what humans like to do? Shop. Shop. You know what else humans like to do? Get together. Um, and I think the experiences, I think offline is a huge opportunity for DTC companies. And, 
I think it was that this is another thing that was in your article is that people were super opinionated about like I'm um, was it um, um, DTC digital only. I'm doing the opposite. I think JB from Red Antler was in the article saying, you know, DT, DTC companies started by just saying we're never doing offline. We're only e-commerce. And I think what they're realizing is like when you're in D DTC business, you're not in the digital business. You're in the solving a human problem and taking that solution to as many humans as you possibly can. So I, I like to say, you know, basically you should be agnostic to distribution and you should be um, laser targeted on the problem you're solving. And taking that mentality out, I think you'd see a lot more DTC companies doing, um, doing retail. Uh, I'd say the other thing with retail is like retail's got pretty stale, obviously. Um, I think it's weird that like when you walk down all these city blocks, like basically retail is closed at whatever time. It's not open till 10 and then it closes at 6 or 7 or whatever. And if you look at how like wor the world has changed in terms of experiences, like I'm waiting for somebody to open up the I'm closed from 10 to 6 and I'm open from, you know, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Um, you know, type experience. Store. Apple Store. On 59th and 5th. 24-7. There you go. Right, they have a billion dollars of sales. Yeah, so I we guess. Know that. Last question over here. Uh, thanks, Tim. Um, I have a, a DTC food company that makes caffeinated protein bars. Uh, you mentioned at the top, and this is kind of related to the last question um, about the experiential roadshow that you're building out. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and your thoughts going into that. Yeah. So um, basically, what we're doing, we're, we're doing a few a few things, and we'll have more announcements coming up over the next three or four months, but. The first thing we announced was basically doing um, physical roadshows out to markets, and I call them um, high demand markets, low supply markets. So we went out and did an analysis of every postal zip code in the United States and looked at whether, um, well, we looked at uh, zip codes where um, income was growing, and then we looked at where people were shutting retail down. So basically every major um, city in the country has a half moon shape around it to one degree or the other, which is places where income is growing um, and retail has been shutting down. So when you see these announcements saying so-and-so is shutting down 2,500 stores or this is happening, you know, in many cases they're not shutting down New York. Like they, this is their flagship, you know, they want to be seen here. So if you live in New York, you don't experience that as much. If you go to some of the, some of the um, places that I've been to, you can physically see it. You basically see people, you know, neighborhoods getting gentrified, wealth growing, and then you look at the retail space and it's empty, 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 empty. So we're we're going to bring DTC brands out to these um, out to these cities, and we're we're going to do it this fall. And um, one of the things I did over in China was also look at all the data in China about the physicality of products in China touching. Chinese consumers and compared it against the US data. And the data is almost 100% consistent across the board, which is a consumer who touches your product or service or uses it has a 30, 40% lift versus somebody who just buys it through a digital mechanism. So we are going to be out across the US um, doing experiences, which are DTC experiences with other things tied to it. And um, I, I, I don't know if it's going to work or not. I hope it will work. But every piece of data I see in the markets, I've been out to visit a lot of the markets. I think it's a really big um, opportunity. And I would also just say, you know, I think the kind of coastal disease the U.S. has, which is, you know, if I'm doing something hot, it's in New York, San Francisco or L.A. or some other place like that. 
you know, the amount of awesome consumers, um, I, I, I'll give you one quick story. One of the better known DTC company founders came into our office and I showed them what we were doing and I showed them the map of the, of the high demand, low supply. And I showed them one of the cities and the person said to me, did you call my marketing department before I came? And I said, no, we didn't. I, they said, how did you choose our number two market outside of New York City, which wasn't Los Angeles or San Francisco? Uh, sorry, Los Angeles or, Cal or San Francisco. And I said, we did this purely on data. And the person said, I can't believe this. This is our number two market. And we had no idea why this is our number two market. And we were like, look, these are markets that, that have a tremendous amount of buying power and you're basically skipping them all the time. Um, and so, uh, so we'll, that w one of the platform things we're doing is that exact, bringing those brands to those type of markets physically. Um, and and, and mo mo mobile, meaning not mobile phone, but we basically are gonna be moving around. Uh, well, Tim, I'm sure we could all ask you a million more questions, but we're out of time. Thank you so much for, for sharing Hillary your thoughts. Thanks, and yeah, thanks, Betaworks. This is an honor.